This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Let's set the Business Week agenda because the markets remain front and center, we know, for our audience and also as a gauge of where we are both economically and what the reaction is to all of this that's going on around us. To help us do that, Gina Martin-Adams is, of course, Bloomberg Intelligence Chief Equity Strategist and Dave Wilson, Bloomberg's Stocks Editor. They both join us from New Jersey. Dave, I want to start with you. Just give us the sense as you look at the the contours of this trade, what's driving us up here? Well, it really looks, Jason, like a lot of the shares that have been beaten down over the past few months are kind of leading the way up here. I mean, you've got a perfect example in Coty. I mean, given that they've made a deal uh, with KKR for uh, their professional beauty business, we're talking about Clairol and Wella, those brands uh, valued in in the transaction of $4.3 billion. And Cote's shares are up almost 17%. It's the biggest gain in the S&P 500. And then you see the gap after that. I mean, talk about a stock that's been beaten up lately. You know, J.P. Morgan getting more positive on the company given the extent of the stock's decline, and it's up more than 12%. You know, you go down the list, you see uh, some of the retailers, uh, companies, you know, real estate investment trusts that actually own the shopping centers. Right. You know, you, you see uh, you know, the, the, the cruise lines, you know, the, the airlines to some extent, the hotels. I mean, those are the kind of stocks that are leading the way, you know, as much as anything. I mean, tech shares aren't even keeping up with the S&P 500 at the moment. Yeah. Gina, come on in on this. It's an interesting, I think we all thought, you know, that because of some of the turmoil that we saw around the nation over the weekend, uh, also China and U.S. tensions seem to be taking uh, another step forward, China kind of kicking back here or pushing back. I I think we thought that there'd be a little bit more nervousness in the markets. How do you see it today? Well, what I see is a market that continues to broaden. Um, It's a continuation of leadership into, as Dave mentioned, the beaten down names. That's really been going on since late March, and it's just continued to gather steam. Uh, Throughout the month of May, we saw this gather steam significantly. But a couple of really critical technical thresholds were reached last week that are just too tough for investors to continue to ignore. I mean, I think the first two months of this rally were was a lot about, you know, kind of taking a leap of faith, and there were still a lot of investors sitting on the sidelines sort of poo-pooing the rally as a bear market rally that will eventually fade and turn over. But last week we crossed over the 200-day moving average for the first time. We got to the point where 90% of stocks in the index were trading above their 50-day moving average. You know, these types of numbers just don't happen in bear market bounces. They usually signify the beginnings of a new uptrend and a recovery rally that tends to endure. So I think what you're seeing um, both last week and a continuation of today is really investors finally capitulating to the trend, rotating into where they see you have the greatest opportunity for continued advance, which many would say are the cyclical laggards where you probably still have a little bit of room for catch-up, and generally starting to put a little bit of money to work in equities 
despite the fact that they're kicking and screaming their way in. Well, it's interesting, you know, also kicking and screaming their way in is Goldman Sachs, which rolled back its pessimistic outlook for stocks, right? David Costin um, was predicting the S&P would slump to the 2400 level. So that was what, 20% below the Friday close. And now they're saying, okay, yeah, we're gonna, you know, go all in like everybody else. Yeah, I mean, these kind of things always worry me. When everybody starts to capitulate, then you want to start to get a little bit more cautious. And that is something that we're starting to do, actually. We put a report on the terminal this morning talking about, you know, while we're very, very um, sort of soothed by the idea that finally we get to uh, claim that this is a recovery rally with the technicals that have formed, we also typically find that market advances slow following yeah. those technical, technical you know, measures reached. So our view is that we head into a choppier market over the summer. We start to really question our economic outlook. We've seen a lot of re-rating on policy and optimism that you know, policy will sort of swoop in and provide enough cover for us to get through this. Now I think we get into more of a show-me market, and we start right. to see, you know, really focus on that economic and earnings data a little bit more for signs of recovery emerging. Yeah, those next earnings reports are going to be fascinating to look at. All right, Gina Martin-Adams, thank you so much. Well, as we know, we talked a little bit about um, so much going on, certainly on this Monday, but we cannot forget that we are still in uh, a global pandemic, global deaths exceeding 372,000. Uh, lots going on. So let's get an update. Uh, let's head back to one of our you know top voices when it comes to what's going on in the virus. That's Dr. Rod Hockman. He's president and CEO of Providence Health. Uh, of course, we've talked to them before and him specifically the massive health system that's out there on the west coast uh, dr hockman joining us on the phone once again from seattle washington um dr hockman nice to have you back with us um tell us a little bit about what you're seeing at this point and what it tells you about kind of where we are as a country when it comes to the virus getting control of the virus and maybe what it helps tell us about what the next few months look like sure i think uh, as all physicians and all people in healthcare, besides the tragic events of the weekend and all of that, we're holding our breath, watching all of these people in close quarters, thinking about what's what's going to happen two weeks from now. And, you know, because we look at it from a clinical standpoint as well as from an emotional standpoint, we understand, but wow, we just, we just see with a lot of the opening up of the country, but then particularly with all the demonstrations across across the country, what's going to happen in terms of the spread of this virus. So that's, I think, collectively, we're holding our breath on that one. Uh, we, were, we were comfortable with where we saw things going. I think now it's kind of a wait and watch where the next few weeks come. And so, Dr. Hockman, when you've joined us before, it's clear that you are in touch with state officials at the highest level. You're talking to CEOs and, and others. Uh, I believe you were in consultation with the Business Roundtable and, and other uh, corporate groups. Help us understand what folks at that level are, are talking about now, especially as we think about reopening in a very cautious way across the country. So I think there are two things. One is we're giving out a lot of advice on what's the best way to do it. And I have to say, from the business standpoint, a lot of the CEOs and companies are doing a great job thinking through how they get their workers back, what's the best thing to do. They're getting a lot of great medical input. So I I was really pleased just to see the way they're responding. And then the second is, specifically with a lot of the pharma CEOs, talking about vaccine development. And the thing that I've been worrying about most is not as much about the vaccine development, 
but are we going to have the delivery mechanisms mm. for those vaccines, enough glass vials, enough needles? And then what's the priority by which we start vaccinating 300-plus million Americans? Who do we start with? How do we do that? Those are all the preparations that we need to do now for six months from now. And I was glad to see at least the business community, and they, I was just talking to the CEO of a, a major pharmaceutical company, he said, look, we just spent the last three hours on that topic. So I was pleased to hear that. Do we need federal government involvement in order to do it um, the way that it needs to be done so that we are ready in six months, perhaps, when a vaccine is there? Yeah, I think the CEOs have gone beyond that and are just saying, okay, how do we get this done? I think we need to have coordination between the pharma companies, and and then each state is going to have to figure out how does it vaccinate its population. And one of the things that we have is that we do the influenza vaccine every year, might that not be a good starting place to figure out how do we distribute the vaccine and everything else? So I think what's happened, I think in this next phase, people are just moving beyond. And so, Dr. Hockman, just staying with with vaccines for a moment, as you're talking to these CEOs and, and other folks within the medical community, and I know you're talking to researchers and, and whatnot, what's the realistic timetable? I mean, is six months still realistic in terms of getting something that is, if not sort of mass available, available to the extent that it really makes a dent in how we can live our lives? Right. So I think there are two aspects to this. One is, you know, kind of the ethical one where a number of people have agreed to get actually infected with COVID if they've gotten on the vaccine to accelerate the process to look at the efficacy. Because ultimately, if you have to wait for, you know, the natural progression of the disease, it takes time. So a lot of people are working through that. If that happens, that's going to really accelerate the development of understanding whether we have an efficacious uh, vaccine. So that's going to be a big, big step there. But it's really exciting. The amount of research that's being done, and more than likely, we'll have more than one vaccine. It's going to be several different ones that we're going to be looking at. If I can switch gears just for a second, Dr. Hockman, I think all of us, you know, there was a story, uh, several stories that have come out, and I, I know Bloomberg News has covered it as well, about, you know, the amount of bailout money that went to different hospital systems. And I think you folks got about half a billion dollars. Help us understand, because you're one of the more, you know, one of the largest systems in the country and one of the more, I guess, financially solvent hospital systems. Help us understand how that makes sense. So, uh, okay, I, I'm so glad you asked that question. I think I need to teach the New York Times about numerator and denominator. <laughs> we, have 50, we have 51 hospitals. We have 120,000 people, and we're in seven states. So obviously, when you break that down, hospital and hospital by clinic, it's actually a smaller amount than has happened in other places. Secondly, you know, we reminded them that they didn't want to print it, that we do about a billion and a half dollars of free care uh, each year in community service. And then the third is on an on a EBITDA and margin basis, we're a 1% to 2% margin operation. So I wish, you know, I wish I was a silicon powerhouse and all the words that they used. And, uh, you know, I think most of us in healthcare saw how long they got the story. Uh, they were just looking at the, you know, the top nine line numbers that were given out 
And, and then also working well with the areas of the country that were most affected. Obviously, we're in Los Angeles and Seattle that were heavily affected by COVID-19. Right. So I, I could go on and on, but um, it's, it's unfortunate how uh, a lot of the stories get editorialized and aren't based on the facts. Right. Dr. Hockman, we really appreciate your input, at, as always. Dr. Hockman from Providence Health. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week, and I have to say, like many people, I was reading everything I could get my hands on over the weekend and was so happy to come across a story by Peter Coy because we look to him to just put things in perspective. And his piece, it's online and on the Bloomberg about Minneapolis, is really a terrific read. He joins us on the phone from New Jersey, as does Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He's on our remote line from Brooklyn. So, Joel, this was one of the I don't know. It's hard to sort of say it's a gift at a time when there's so much turmoil going on, but it really was some important perspective. Help us understand what Peter set out to do before we get to him. Uh, well, I mean, first of all, like the country is just reeling right now, and um, it, that was even before the weekend started. And right. um, I was talking with Peter a little bit, and he said, "You know, I know Jacob Frey," uh, and and that immediately just caught my attention because, um, you know, I just always respect sort of wherever Peter's mind goes. Um, but the the really the angle that he he hit on here was um, one that kind of I think is good. It, it, you know, it, it's very prescient and that it takes into account everything that Minneapolis has really gone through, not only on Phrase Watch, but just historically. And I think that that infused um, in, in the article, and it also helps us make sense of what happened in Minneapolis, which then led to, um, obviously, a, a much bigger national moment that we're all watching very closely now. Um, uh, Peter, what was... For you, when you kind of look at Frey and Minneapolis, what are the what are the elements that have jumped out to you? Oh, Minneapolis is well known as a, a really a mecca of corporate philanthropy. You know, they have a really dense concentration of Fortune five hundred S and P five hundred companies, and uh, you know, I can go down the list, but three M, uh, Best Buy, Target, on and on, and. John D. Rockefeller, back in the 1970s, uh, the third, that is, uh, visited Minneapolis partly just to see, you know, how could this one city be so famous for its corporate giving? And yet, at the same time, they have a very bad problem of racial inequality in housing and incomes and so on. So I just think it's, it's tragic, and it deserves more study, partly because the people who you know, subscribe to Bloomberg, read Bloomberg Business, and listen to Bloomberg Radio, are the kind of people who work for some of these companies and think of themselves as doing the right thing, and yet somehow the right outcomes are not happening. Well, and I'm going to say, you know, we have a guest coming up after this, John Hope Bryant at Operation Hope, and I want to talk to him about corporate responsibility in all of this, because as you say, Peter, you know, the Twin Cities, I mean, it's like a who's who list, who's who's list of, of corporate America, Target, Cargill, Medtronic, 3M, yeah. Yeah. Ecolabs, General Mills, Best Buy, U.S. Bank. And, you know, we've had conversations with so many different executives at different firms about, you know, diversity, inclusion, equality, you know, putting, you know, f- uh, programs in place at companies. And yet here we are. Yep. Yep. That's a tragedy. Uh, so I, I know Jacob Fry, the, uh, the, the mayor, he was a, a runner. Um, he actually represented the U.S. in the Pan American Games in the marathon. And then at, at a young age, he became the mayor. He's a very progressive kind of guy. And here he, he was doing sort of the right things to put 
Minneapolis on the track to reducing some of this racial inequality. This came along, and it's just devastating the city, and it's going to be hard to rebuild from this. You know, Peter, we wrote a feature um, which you cite in your story yeah. last year, sort of about um, this movement that's been happening across the country. Um, and Minneapolis became one of the most interesting places to watch, yeah. which is about YIMBY and, and uh, NIMBY and, and sort of the end of zoning, um, single family housing. Um, what is the role between that and sort of what's happening, what's happened in Minneapolis over time? So uh, a lot of cities around the country had basically segregation. Blacks were not allowed to live in certain neighborhoods, and that went away. But it was kind of replaced by zoning laws, which were not uh, on their face segregationist, but had some of the same effects. Seventy uh, percent of the residential land in Minneapolis has, has been zoned for single families. A lot of blacks could not afford to buy houses and they were stuck in apartments and not able to build wealth and, and of course, segregated. Um, so Minneapolis became the first big city in the United States in 2018 to repeal single-family housing, which allows apartment buildings to be built all around the city. This is quite a dramatic event because you can imagine how many homeowners you might have been expected to resist this, and yet it, it passed the council and approved by the mayor, and it's... Uh, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about the city trying to move towards, you know, fixing its original sins. And that's why it's so tragic that this happened anyway when they seem to be on a, a, a course towards better uh, times. And I know, it, Peter, it's impossible to, to predict anything these days. And certainly it's, it's too soon to make a lot of predictions about what happens tonight, much less what sure. happens uh, in, in the near to midterm. But, you know, what does Minneapolis do at this point? And, and knowing what you do know about the leadership there, what do you think the playbook is? I think we have to go back to the 1960s to see how it played out back then. And this is similar in some ways. It's, it's a very slow process of healing. I'm, I'm sorry to say that it doesn't always work. I mean, there are cities like Newark and Detroit that were really lastingly damaged by the riots they had white flight, there was business flight, and they're, to this day, depopulated and poorer than they were before those riots. Just praying that doesn't happen this time. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. We thank you both so much. Peter Coy, uh, joining us, Economics Editor for Bloomberg Business Week, joining us on the phone from New Jersey. And Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, joining us from Brooklyn. And, and Carol, it, it really is one of those stories that reminds us, I think, something that we're going to be talking about throughout the course of this show, and, and I'm guessing throughout the course of this week and, and maybe longer, which is everything – quoting Joel Weber, is a business story in, in many ways. And, and the economics of a place and the role of corporations, and as you said, we're going to talk about this in just a few minutes with John Hope Bryant, it has become even more important. And one of the things that, that I've been thinking a lot about, and I'm guessing you have too, is this notion of what do we expect companies to do and what do we expect them to say, and maybe in reverse order. We know that they're going to say something. What do we expect them to do? What is their responsibility uh, at a time like this? And I feel like now more than ever, 
they have to act. Well, you know, this is no, nothing, you know, it's not dissimilar to what we've been talking about with the virus about, you know, these inequalities. It's not like they all of a sudden just happen because of the virus. The same thing, you know, with what we've seen play out in Minneapolis and really, you know, elsewhere around the country. Um, not everyone is given the same equal start or, you know, or access to opportunities. And we've talked so much about kind of, you know, where you grow up um, often means what kind of perhaps public education you get. And that means what kind of higher education you get and what kind of job you get and what kind of health care you get. I mean, it's, you know, it's all connected. And, you know, I think it's really remarkable what the Minneapolis mayor tried to do in terms of single yeah. family zoning. I mean, this is how you start to change things. And I agree, Jason, I feel like we have been having these conversations. I know I certainly have in my career for years. Exactly. And so enough talking and let's actually start to see some action. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Back with us is John Hope Bryant. He's the founder, chairman, and CEO of the Atlanta-based operation Hope. Uh, John is also chairman and chief executive officer of Bryant Group Ventures and co-founder of Global Dignity. He joins us on the phone from Atlanta. John, uh, it's nice to have you back with us, but I do wish it was under different circumstances. I do feel like you know, like the virus, there are things that persist in our society, inequalities, injustices, lack of accountability, you know, that were there, but we're seeing them once again, front and center. It's it's horrible. I do wonder, you know, what happens as a result uh, of what's happening in, in Minneapolis right now? What changes? Uh you know, consciousness is like a rubber band that is expanded. You know, it never returns to its original size. First of all, thank you and your colleagues for all that you do. Thanks for being a light on the heel in a moment of darkness. Uh, the media is playing an outsized role in our consciousness these days because some of our national leaders are not stepping up in a way that's holistic, that's bridge building, that's bringing us together, that's providing a light and a way forward. So thank you guys for doing that. Thank you. You know, again, a a rubber band that's expanded doesn't return to its original size. It's forever extended. And so when things like this happen, you, you stop having black people saying, I feel discriminated against, and white people saying, I have no idea what you're talking about. As Will Smith said, racism did, did, did not get discovered. It got filmed. And now when something like this happens, it just becomes undeniable. It's like the people of, of goodwill, which are most people, just go, that's just, that's just ridiculous. Like, that's, that's disgusting. That, we can't, we can't, that's, not the, that's not our nation. That's not our, you know, what if that's my child? And we start having a, a we conversation and not a me-you conversation. Uh, and then you can begin to do something about it. Uh, I, over the weekend, I've had a problem with the looting and Operation was founded in the, after the Rodney King riots in 1992, so this strikes me very close to home. Um, we're the largest of what we do in the country because we responded differently to uh, the riot after it was over. It decided to respond, not react. Uh, but this rioting and the looting, if that continues, we will destroy the moral authority that George Floyd's death gave us to honor his legacy. This weekend, though, I was you know, talking to some young people, and they said, John, you get to be at the table. You know, you, you get to talk to people. You get to do media. You get to go to the White House. You get to go, go to, you know, CEOs, offices, and so on. So they listen to you. We've been, listen, we've been talking. My, my grandfather was talking. My father's been talking. I'm talking. They don't listen to us. No one listens to us until we tear some stuff up. So they said, look, we don't want to tear stuff up. It's primarily not us tearing stuff up. We've been infiltrated, so on and so forth. But when stuff gets torn up, it, people are actually listening to us. So now we can 
hand the baton back to you to go talk for us in these boardrooms and, and, and hopefully cut a deal to get me an internship to, to stop the poverty, stop, increase the peace, increase some legislation to get us some fairness. And I, I think that goes back to that Dr. King quote. He said that, that violence is the language of the unseen and the unheard. Dr. King wasn't endorsing violence. He was acknowledging mm. the pain. Well, and John, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Dr. King because you're there in Atlanta, and I think a lot of us saw your mayor, and, and I'm from Atlanta, as you know, and so I was paying very close attention, even closer attention to it, the legacy of Dr. King and, and the legacy of so many others, whether it's former Mayor Andy Young, whether it's obviously Congressman Lewis and so many others like you who are down there in Atlanta, which has, again, such a, a rich legacy here. What have you learned and, and what are we learning there that maybe we can take in, in a broader sense? Because Mayor Bottoms, you know, spoke so passionately about the that legacy. And, and I wonder how that translates, especially to a business audience. Yeah, so that's a very good question. I think that this goes back, you know, by the way, things are calming down here. Where things are popping off and hiding, heating up other places. We're starting to transition a bit here. And I think it's part in part because the mayor, who's a black woman, said, stop the looting. Like, you're not honoring our legacy. This is ridiculous. She, be, she behaved like a parent. And a lot of our national leaders are not behaving like good parents. But she behaved like a good parent. And you had, so you had that. Then you had corporate leaders step up, yes. But you had moral leaders like Andrew Young, Ambassador Andrew Young, my mentor, say, you're breaking my heart. I'm crying now. We didn't give our lives for this. Then you had T.I., and Killer Mike uh, from the hip-hop generation saying, hey, guys, hey, 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 I, we own property over here. Like, you know, right. all this looting. Like, this is not the way. This is not the way, right? So you, so it becomes culturally un, um, unsexy, <laughs> culturally unacceptable for, for, for those who, who want to deal in this world we live in after this is over to, to continue with this. So we, we acknowledge the pain. We acknowledge all that. But uh, – Atlanta's just a very, to me, Atlanta's a moral center of America because of the civil rights legacy. This, to me, speaks to going back to the 60s, you know, Birmingham, Alabama, and, and, and Memphis could have been Atlanta. Same, mm. actually more population, better location for an international airport. But they fought over race, and we decided to fight over money. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, uh, hey, John, and, and that and, and that became the conversation at this time. Hey, you guys, you right? Can't, you can't destroy the CNN Center. You right? Can't, you can't destroy the mall, right? This is where you, this is where our friends work. This is where your cousin works on Monday. You can't you can't destroy it on Sunday. You got to go to work on Monday. Go ahead. No, that's a really good point. John, just unfortunately only got about 40 seconds left here. I mean, Atlanta, Minneapolis, you know, the Twin Cities, these are all cities that are, you know, home to re- a lot of well-known corporations. What's the responsibility of CEOs and companies in all of this? A lot of them have diversity programs. They talk a lot. But what do we need to see in terms of action? And my apologies, only got about 30 seconds. Reimagine your budget. Look at your annual budget. If your budget has a B attached to it, reimagine your budget. Where are your interns going? Where are your apprenticeships going? Where's your advertising dollars going? Where, you know, where are your subcontracts going? And see if you can empower minorities and underserved and women with those opportunities, because that's going to create peace. The best way to stop a bullet is a job. This is about poverty. This is about poverty. All right. Well, we really appreciate your time. We wish we had more. We're going to have you back really soon. Uh, what a treat. John Hope Bryan, as Carol said, 
We wish it were under different circumstances, but there are a few voices who are as clear as yours. We really appreciate it. Founder and CEO of Operation Hope, joining us on the phone from my hometown, Atlanta, uh, and it does have a very rich legacy. Protests, though, they are nothing new uh, in China and specifically in Hong Kong. We've been talking about it for months and months. They have restarted with a vengeance, and it's all because of a continuing conflict between Beijing and Hong Kong. Andy Brown has been following that incredibly closely, editorial director, of course, for Bloomberg New Economy. He lived in that part of the world for many, many years, and he's been following it for us and sharing his conversations with us, and we love having him back. Uh, he's on the phone from New Hampshire. So, Andy, uh, we've all been sort of domestically focused, I think, rightly so, over the past 48 to 72 hours. But, you know, meanwhile, this issue with China and with Hong Kong and involving the relationship between the United States and China has continued to escalate What's the most important thing we need to know here? Well, there is actually a di direct connection between protests in the United States and, uh, and protests in Hong Kong. Um, you know, uh, the Chinese government, of course, um, gloats at uh, whenever the United States gets into trouble and uh, is able to um, tell a domestic audience that, look, our, our system is, is superior, America uh, is in is in decline. Um, lots of talk about you know U.S. hypocrisy, criticizing the response to pro-democracy demonstrations in Hong Kong, and then noting the behavior of some of the police against protesters and the media um, here in the United States. But um, the immediate connection with with Hong Kong is that you know every June fourth, um, uh, many many wow. protesters, thousands of protesters in in Hong Kong take to the streets. Um, to commemorate um, the the uh, the anniversary of the crushing of the pro-democracy protests in Beijing's Tiananmen Square uh, on June the fourth in uh, in 1989, and um, you know this is the first real test of this national security law, which China's parliament ran through over the heads of the Hong Kong legislature, and uh, the Hong Kong police have banned that uh, that protest. So a lot of people say, well. You know, this, uh, this national security law won't have any, any impact. It will just sort of be parked to one side, never get used. And already you're, 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 seeing, um, you're seeing the effect uh, in terms of a political tightening uh, in Hong Kong. Of course, the, the police say this is a, a COVID-19 uh, restriction. Um, but very clearly, this was the pretext to, uh, to prevent commemoration this year. What do you make of the continued, Andy, you know, escalation between the two? As you said, you know, China, you know, kind of pointing out to President Trump's own domestic woes because of these protests and talking about double standards, you know, uh, between what's going on here and, and versus Hong Kong. At the same time, we have China, you know, um, halting some U.S. farm imports so that threatens that phase one of the trade deal. So what, what, how do we put that all in context, kind of those moves together? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting when uh, Donald Trump on, on Friday, when he announced uh, the, the, the official response, U.S. response to the passage of this national security law. And um, he promised a, 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 you know, a very tough response. And, and we were all wondering what that might be. And um, 
in fact, um, it was a very watery, vague sort of statement that was sort of long on anguish and outrage and short on specifics. Um, and, and very importantly, um, he did not uh, say that the U.S. would abandon um, the phase one trade deal. And that's really critical. I mean, we, we've talked about this before as being one of the few slender threads that now hold the relationship between the U.S. and, and, and China together. So much so that, you know, uh, today in Hong Kong or yesterday in Hong Kong, the markets took Trump's um, uh, pronouncements on Hong Kong as a, as a, as a reason to buy. And, um, you know, we saw, we saw stocks going up. Yeah, I mean, that's the amazing thing. And I'm glad you went there because amid all of this, I mean, we're looking at this here in the United States, but also in China, this notion that investors say, all right, like we can deal with this. Like we're just going to you know, keep buying folks. How do you square that as someone who looks at the new economy? Yeah, look, there's probably more sound and thunder in this than, than, than anything else, because the truth of the matter is that, you know, the, the there's a lot of, of, of talk. Will, will, will Trump, uh, you know, uh, uh, renege or will, 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 will right. Trump, uh, you know, throw Hong Kong out of this sort of special trading relationship with, with, with the U.S.? Uh, the truth is that, you know, Hong Kong, the U United States runs a very large trade surplus with, with Hong Kong. And if it actually did away um, with, with Hong Kong's special trading status, it would hurt the U.S. and U.S. companies, you know, far more than it, than it would Hong Kong. So the, 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 the fact is that there isn't a whole lot that the U.S., that Trump can do, um, you know, to hit back against China over Hong Kong without hurting its own interests. I mean, it's quite a, it's quite a dilemma that uh, the White House now faces. Yeah, it is interesting. And uh, as complicated as it is, there are some very clear uh, economic consequences or, or lack thereof, depending on where you're looking. All right. Andy Brown, thank you so much. Editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy. We're so happy to catch up with him every week because it's a story. There are a lot of connections to it, Carol. Well, and you got to really understand trade and what the consequences are, because in many ways, U.S. companies are ultimately the ones that get hurt in this process. So you really have to understand the details and nuances. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Emily Rowland is back with us, co-chief investment strategist at John Hancock Investments, uh, based in Boston. And that's exactly where we find her on this Monday. Emily, nice to have you back with uh, Jason and myself. So... Tell us a little bit about kind of where we are in this market. We kicked off our broadcast a couple of hours ago, our Gina Martin-Adams saying, you know, um, looking at the outcome, we're seeing broad-based gains, stocks, you know, a lot of them above their 200-day moving average, the S&P above it. Um, I don't know. When you look at the market, what does it tell you? Well, thanks, Carol, for having me today and Jason. And, and certainly there's quite a bit of optimism that's being priced in by the markets today. And, it, you know, it seems that we wake up every morning and, and futures are higher once again. 
you know, despite some of the, the really negative headlines we're seeing, and, and certainly, you know, with the country struggling right now, um, you know, that's a challenge. Um, we may see um, some recent events, you know, start to dent some of the green shoots that we've, we started to see from an economic perspective. But really, at the end of the day, what it comes down to is, is markets are reacting to this incredible amount of fiscal and, and monetary stimulus that we've seen. You know, the Fed's balance sheet is now sitting near $7 trillion. That's a 30% increase in just three months. Europe's getting its act together in terms of providing stimulus Japan. So we continue to see this incredible support that's really outweighing all these challenges and uncertainty that continues to face the markets today. It is really remarkable. I mean, I have to say, I mean, it's just a, a measure of cognitive dissonance that we're all kind of learning to live with here. Emily, I also wonder, you know, looking at my Bloomberg terminal here and, and looking at year to date and there it is standing out in the green, the NASDAQ. It's just it's just remarkable to, to look at. And, you know, we've been talking about this with Dave Wilson, our stocks guy, a lot. How do you sort of think about that? And is this just a few names that dominate the the index there? Or what do you make of it? Yeah, I was just listening to Dave's commentary, and I think his, his chart is spot on and, and so relevant right now. And what we've seen start to happen as the as this reopening and this positive news is, is priced in more is we have seen a broadening of participation in the market and a lot of ink's been spilled on that in recent days. But we think it's really important because there have been some parts of the market that have just been left behind on this rally. I mean, tech being up, uh, you know, 7% year to day. Meanwhile, financials up around, you know, down, excuse me, uh, 23, 24% year to date. That's a huge uh, mismatch here between the winners and the losers. We like technology. It's an area of the market that we've been overweight, but that's really been like the only trade of 2020. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like congratulations to, to folks that have been overweight there and have, have maintained those positions. But we think that if we do continue to see markets rally on this sentiment and we see more and more investors coming off the sidelines, which is what you're seeing, you could see this broadening participation in the markets play out with areas like small and mid caps coming back, value kind of staging some gains here, as well as potentially seeing some ultimate participation from the international side. We're not totally sold on the rotation to cyclicals yet uh, from a thematic standpoint or a longer-term standpoint. We think you actually need to see some real meaningful reacceleration in economic growth besides just the data getting less worse. But we think from a tactical perspective here, investors may want to reallocate assets into those parts of the market that have been relatively beaten down. And just to press that, Emily, in keeping what you just said, so your advice is trim tech for financials at this point. That's right. And again, it's, a, it's likely a bit of a tactical trade for now until we get some confirmation that we're really going to have this, this reacceleration in economic growth. And frankly, we're not totally convinced it's there yet. Lots of uncertainty still. Economic data is going to get, you know, still challenged. I mean, I know we're seeing um, a bounce off the bottom here and a, a potential bottoming process play out and things like PMI data. And that's great. And we're optimistic because of it. We still think that there's a lot of uncertainty. This reopening could be uneven. It could be controversial. We could see another wave of the virus. Those are all things that are just absolutely impossible or nearly impossible to handicap at this point. So we want to stay balanced. 
We want to participate in the market uh, because we want to respect the rally here, but we want to do it in a really disciplined way. So that means owning some quality growth still, um, but potentially thinking about leaning more into value in order to keep those portfolios balanced. And Emily, just before we let you go, I mean, I do wonder, you know, as we're into this, we Carol and I spend so much of our time every day talking about how various businesses have changed. How's your business changed? Uh, you know, I mean, you work with a big group of people uh, with a very well-known company. And of course, the saddest thing about reading the name John Hancock is the cancellation of the Boston Marathon. We can dwell on that yeah. another time. Um, but, but I do wonder how your day-to-day has changed and how you think it's going to change going forward. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, Manny Life, John Hancock, big company. I think we've responded really well um, to some of the challenges that have been presented. But just like so many other people, you know, I've had to adjust for, to this new environment of, of spending my time more working from home. I used to spend about two-thirds of my time out on the road meeting with financial advisors. I've tried to replicate those conversations um, by doing Zoom meetings, but frankly, there's just nothing that beats that face-to-face contact. So I am personally really looking forward to re-engaging and getting back out there. But for now, we're going to stay home and do our economic analysis from here and also help our kids do their homework at the same time. (laughs) You sound like you're ready. I'm just going to put it out there. (laughs) I am done teaching first and fourth grade. I can tell you that much. (laughs) Well, kudos to you, right? Yeah, exactly. All right. Emily Rowland, thank you so much. Co-Chief Investment Strategist for John Hancock Investment Management. Joining us on the phone from Boston and, you know, doing a lot of juggling, as many of us are. uh, Like everybody. And, uh, you know, we're seeing some sort of return in sight. We've been talking about it very tentatively. Um, But, uh, you know, it is amazing how much, you know, how long folks, especially those those of us who are used to, you know, being out there, have not been out there uh, at all. It's really kind of remarkable. Think about how many trips that we didn't take. I, I was thinking it's about probably like a half a dozen. Easily. Yeah. At least in terms of being home uh, these last few weeks. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.